you know, the devil is a bully. He bullies people into believing lies. He puts people in our lives that try to bully us to live by fear rather than by faith. And bullies always think they have power. And they only have power if you give them power. I have friends right now that are seriously being bullied on social media. Uh, they're in leadership positions and people are attacking them, attacking their children, attacking their families, calling them names. The one thing I appreciate about those people is they don't respond. Listen, you never argue with an idiot because they're always going to be an idiot and you don't have enough time to fix that. So if you let somebody bully you, they will. And the best thing you can do to bully is tell them what the truth is and then just let God deal with them. But I want to give you some statistics on bullying because for many people, if you don't have preschoolers and children, you may not be aware, cognizant, appreciative, understanding of what's going on with bullying in our culture today. Because Paul wrote a letter up to a church, and under the book of First and Second Corinthians, you could write Paul's response to bullies. How to lead out of weakness when people are saying you're nothing. How to be God's person when people are saying you're not worth anything. So let me just give you some ideas about bullying. Number one, over 3.2 million students are victims of bullying every year. Secondly, approximately 160,000 teens skip school every day because of bullying. Number three, 17% of American students report being bullied two to three times a month or more within a semester. By age 14, less than 30% of boys and 40% of girls will talk to their peers about being bullied. They don't even tell their friends they're being bullied. And only one in 10 kids will tell their parents about cyber bullying. Now, Paul wasn't being bullied by cell phones. They didn't even have hard lines back then. Uh, Paul wasn't being bullied by social media. But there was a church in Corinth that was bullying him because they were mocking him and making fun of the way he looked. And, and they, they bullied by talking to other people but never talking to Paul. They, they never had the guts to look Paul in the face, so they just talked to other people and they sent messages. And, and those kind of people are still in churches today. They're saying that there are many people who are concerned. Well, let's name them right now. Just get out a piece of paper. Oh, they don't want, they don't, well then, I don't care what they think. Paul is being bullied by these people and they're going after him like sharks in the water. I mean, they are after him. I don't think unless you just sat down and read 1 and 2 Corinthians without stopping, you can realize the attacks 
that Paul was under as a leader. They itemized his personal defects. They mocked his personal appearance. They laughed at his human weaknesses. And, and Paul, by any reading of the New Testament, was not a physically imposing person. Some believed he had a deformity that was hard to look at. But you read his letters, he's clear that he suffered, he had had hardships, and he had had ailments. But here's where they were really after him. They were saying to the Apostle Paul, who Jesus appeared to on the road to Damascus, you're not qualified to be a leader. You're not qualified to speak into our lives. You're not qualified to teach us. You don't have an appealing personality. And they challenged his authority. Listen, if you don't know who you are in Christ, everybody will intimidate you. If you know who you are in Christ, nobody can intimidate you. But you better know who you are in Christ. Paul was not intimidated because he knew who he was. But let's move from the bullying to the blessings of brokenness. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to bounce a little bit between 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 27. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 27. Here's what Paul, I mean, right out of the box, his first letter to Corinth, this is what he says, to these proud, arrogant, bullying people who think they can get away with anything. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that. Why did he choose those kind of people? So that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. You see, some people are just too big for God to use, and some people think too much of themselves for God to use them. Paul says, you want to know who God uses? He uses people that realize they're nothing without Jesus. That's the kind of people that God uses, that know that in and of themselves, they don't have anything to offer apart from Jesus. Giles Wall Sanders said, God is a God who hides himself. His power is usually hidden power. He conceals his omnipotence under a mantle of silence. God's power is hidden power. It's not a suit we put on. It's not a, a shirt we put on. It's not a t-shirt we buy. It's not a piece of jewelry that we wear. God's power is a hidden power. It is inside of us. Now turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh. Paul, if anybody had a right to brag and boast, it was Paul. But Paul comes and finds out that God is going to humble him with this thorn in the flesh. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, this thorn in the flesh actually was a weakness that became a way to grow his faith. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Verse 7. 
Now, let me, let me just stop right there and just look this way for a minute. Can you imagine the things that Paul knew that he never got to talk about? I mean, the guy had been to the third heaven. You know, if he had had a TV ministry, he would have sold, he would have sold video recreations of his experience in the third heaven. And you could have bought the whole set for $99, and for $150, you could have bought an autographed copy of it to support his ministry. Paul had all the Paul had experiences nobody else had ever had. And Paul said, you know, one day God looked down on my life and said, you know, Paul is a good guy and he is saved and he loves Jesus and he's filled with the Spirit. But I want to make sure this doesn't become about the Apostle Paul. I want to make sure this is about Jesus. And so he allows Satan to give him this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. So what does Paul do? Paul does what we do. He called the prayer line. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses. Look at what he's content with. Weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Back in verse 5, he says, On my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weakness. Here's a principle that you need to know. The strength of the church is in our weakness. The strength of the church is in our weakness. Now, when I was growing up, you know, the strength of your church is how many important people you had in it. It was if you had people that were a part of the organizations and leaders of the big community businesses and the, the movers and the shakers that could get thing done, things done. And, but we never had the power of God. We had important people, but we never had the power of God. We had powerful business meetings, but we never had the power of God. You see, the strength of the church is in our weakness. It's when we all come saying, look, I am nothing but a wretched sinner saved by the grace of God. I've got nothing to offer except that Christ saved me. This is not about how good I am. It's about how great God is. The strength of the church is in our weakness that, that God takes nobodies and makes them into somebody so that the glory is in the one, Jesus Christ. You see, our desperate need of the Holy Spirit is what we always have to acknowledge to accomplish the mission that God has given us. It is not, well, we can do this and we'll just ask God to bless it. No, it is our desperate need of the Holy Spirit of God. The courageous leader knows his or her weakness and also acknowledges the source of strength. Paul didn't demand respect because he said, hey, you need to read my resume. I, I got a pretty stout resume. You need to read my heritage. You need to know, you, you ought to see my family tree. Well, most of us, we got broken limbs and crooked limbs on our family trees. I mean, Paul just had this incredible heritage and, and legacy, but it became nothing to him when he met Christ. 
All the things that he had bragged about, all the things that he had boasted about, became nothing to him when he met Christ. Now, here, here's a, a long statement, and I hope you get it. The work of God is best done either in the absence of human resources or in the abandonment of reliance on them. The work of God is best done either in the absence of human resources or in the abandonment of reliance on them. You know where the church is growing the greatest right now in the world? In persecuted countries. They don't have the resources we have. All they got is Jesus. We got everything but Jesus in the American church. We, we got all our stuff and we got all our gimmicks and we got all our programs and we got all our methods, but the, for too many, what we don't have is Jesus. Look at that quote again. The work of God is best done either in the absence of human resources. Well, what does that mean? It means I've got to depend on God. I've got to trust God. I don't have everything I need. I've got to trust God or the abandonment of reliance on them. That we rely too much on the things we have and not on the God who gave us those things. Paul had every right to put these people down. They were in no way no way, not a person in Corinth was in any way the spiritual or intellectual equal of the Apostle Paul. But he didn't put them down. Look at, uh, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And look at how Paul responded to them. He, he didn't slap them down. He didn't bully them back. He didn't beat them up and say, I'll tell you, let me just tell you about who I am and what I've done and where I've been and what I've seen. You, you're nobodies. No, he didn't do that. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, this is the great Apostle Paul talking. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. In other words, Paul was not interested in them being impressed with his words. He was interested in them recognizing the Spirit and power that was inside of him, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So that you would say, well, we're going to be okay because the Apostle Paul is great and awesome and, and he can fight all the battles for us. He said, no, I came in fear and trembling and in weakness and so that you would know that the power in my life is the Spirit of God and that your faith would not rest in how smart I am, but it would rest on God. One of the great leaders of Christianity in the 19th century was D.L. Moody. Dale Moody would have been the Billy Graham of his generation and of his, his time. He had a sixth grade education, drastically overweight. He had a high-pitched nasal voice. There was nothing about him that made him impressive. One day, a reporter was following him, and a reporter said about Moody, I can see nothing whatever in Moody to account for his marvelous work. And D.L. Moody replied, of course not, because the work is God's, not mine. Today, 
There are five ministries that D.O. Moody started that are still strong and existing from a guy with a sixth grade education. Now, we would be impressed if he'd had 12 PhDs and if he'd have spoken 13 different languages. we said, boy, you know, that guy's work ought to stand forever. But here's a guy who was a shoe salesman with a sixth grade education, wasn't even easy to listen to, high-pitched nasal voice. The other great preacher of the time was Charles Spurgeon, who had a booming baritone voice, and both of them could be heard in a room of 10,000 people without any amplification. Neither one of them would have qualified to be the leader of most churches today. But the work was of God and not of them. Paul realized that his thorn in the flesh was a constant reminder, I need to depend on God. Now, what about the beauty of brokenness? You see, what, what they forgot and what we sometimes forget, there would have been no church in Corinth without Paul. Paul is their spiritual father. They'd come to Christ because of his obedience. This guy that they're calling a nobody had made them into the church that they were and that they had forgotten it and gone off in their own flesh and in their own strength. Here are the two things you need to know about them. First of all, they were ungrateful for the grace that they had received. They were ungrateful for the grace that they had received. Have you ever met a Christian who was ungrateful? They were ungrateful for the grace that they had received. But Paul never got over the grace that he had received. So let me just ask you a question. While you're sitting here on Sunday, you got dressed to come to church on Sunday morning, and you're all sitting here, and I'm glad you're here. I'm glad everybody's a part of this service. But, but have you gotten over the grace that you've received? Have, have you developed somewhere in your heart this attitude of, come up with some new tricks, say some new things, do some new stuff. We've already seen that. We've already heard that. We've already done that. We've already been there. Just, just do something new. Impress me. If that's your attitude, you've gotten over the grace that you've received because you don't deserve anything and I don't deserve anything. If God never answered another prayer you prayed and never gave you another breath of health, you would have no reason to complain. Because he's given you grace to get you to heaven one day. Have you gotten over the grace that you've received? Does it, does it bring joy to you that God has given you so much grace? And, and you know, I, listen, I, I see myself in the mirror every day when I'm getting ready. And I, I can't believe God has put up with me the way he has. But before you say, well, you're right, Michael, I'm glad you finally admitted that, you look in the mirror and you ought to say every day, I can't believe God's put up with me either. Amen. I mean, did God put up with any of us? We bring nothing to the table except we are wretched sinners in need of a Savior. That's what we bring to the table. And then God fills us with his Holy Spirit and empowers us to have the courage to do the things we do, to witness, to share, to go, to give, to serve, to do all of those things in his power, not in ours. And when we try to go out there without his power, then guess what happens? We fall down flat on our face because we try to do it without him. So Paul 
sees all these accusations. These false teachers are trying to steal the church. They're trying to discredit him. And if you read the letters, here's what Paul did with the criticism. He turned the conversation to Christ. That's what you do with bullies. You turn the conversation to Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, most gladly I will boast in my infirmities. You turn the conversation to Christ. I, I remember when we, uh, early 90s, we had, we used to have deacon elections. We don't have elections anymore because an election implies that some are winners and some are losers. And so we don't, we don't do that anymore. We, we select from among you. That's what it says in Acts chapter 6. We just decided, let's do this biblically instead of doing it democratically. It works a lot better. And I remember we selected our first African-American deacon in 1992, and I had a man come into office, and he said, there's no man that color, and I won't say the word he used, there's no man that color that deserves to be a deacon more than me. And I said, well, uh, this past year on visitation, he led 26 people to Christ. We got 36 deacons. I can't find that our whole deacon body led 26 people to Christ, so maybe we just need one deacon. Listen, if you think the color of your skin makes you more qualified than anybody else, shame on you. It, you had nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. God has taken, according to 2 Corinthians 4, God has taken and put this treasure in earthen vessels. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. God has placed a treasure in earthen vessels. Uh, I like what Howard Hendricks used to say. God has placed his treasure in plain old peanut butter jars. Now, you wouldn't put a treasure inside a peanut butter jar, although peanut butter is pretty good, sounds pretty good right now. You, you, you wouldn't put a treasure inside a peanut butter jar, inside of a clay jar. We have this treasure in a clay jar. Listen, look at the person next to you and say, we're all cracked pots. Mm. I mean, you're just all cracked. We're all cracked pots. We're all just clay jars. You know what a clay jar does? It breaks easily. It breaks easily. And when you look at the Bible, and you look at the people that God used in the Bible, listen, nobody wants a biography written about them that tells the truth. You know, you see these autobiographies of these stars and starlets. They just tell you what they want you to hear. But the Bible shows the heroes, warts and all. Let me, let me just go down the list with you just quickly. Abraham gave in to his fears and lied, Genesis 12. Moses was slow of speech and slow of tongue. Exodus 4 says he also had a bad temper. David committed adultery and murder, 2 Samuel 11. Elijah dealt with depression, 1 Kings 19. Isaiah confessed that he had an unclean mouth, Isaiah 6. Jonah ran from God's will because he was a racist. Peter denied Christ with cursing and oaths, Max 20, uh, Matthew 26. Paul said, I am a wretched man in Romans chapter 7. And every one of them are the heroes of our faith, not because we applaud their sin, but God used them in spite of the many times they messed up. That's the grace of God. 
This deliberate paradox in 2 Corinthians 4 of treasure in earthen vessels. You don't store a treasure in a modest, simple clay pot that you can get at Hobby Lobby. What's the treasure? It's the gospel. It's the indwelling Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. And here's what we need to understand in our be strong world. The weaker the vessel, the greater the power of God is revealed. The weaker the vessel, the greater the power of God is revealed. What is God looking for in this clay jar, in this earthen vessel? Uh, something that's clean, something that's empty of self, and something that's available. The weaker the vessel, the greater display of the power of God. The focus is on the treasure, not on the vessel. I mean, the focus is on what's inside, not on what our vessel looks like. We spend a ton of money in our country trying to make our vessel look better, and God's trying to make the inside of us better. J. Hudson Taylor said, God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on him being with them. Let me give you another thought about the vessel. The container is trivial. The treasure is priceless. The container is trivial. The treasure is priceless. That's what happened uh, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered at Qumran, down in the desert of Israel. A shepherd boy had lost one of his sheep, and he's out trying to find this sheep, and he throws a rock up into a cave, cave two, and he throws a rock up into it, and he hears something break. And he goes up to examine it. There's this clay jar. And inside this clay jar are scrolls. And those scrolls are what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls, which had copies of every book of the Old Testament, fragments of every book of the Old Testament except for Esther. All because a shepherd boy threw a rock and broke a clay jar that was insignificant, but those jars had been up there for 2,000 years. Because of the climate, the fragments were spared because they didn't deteriorate. Now, he broke a jar, but the broken jar revealed a treasure. When I, when I started out in ministry, I thought I knew everything. You know, I was the most brilliant 19-year-old. I, I knew how to fix everything. I knew how to solve everything. I, I mean, I was, I was something. I was brilliant. Got me fired. <laughs> I mean, my own dad fired me one time. And I was the only person he had working. I mean, my dad fired me. I remember when Don Miller came here to help us establish our prayer ministry and, and we were sitting in my living room and he said, Michael, what are you willing to do to see Sherwood Baptist Church be a great church and to be a house of prayer? I said, I'll do whatever God tells me to do. He said, are you willing to lose 800 people? 
And I thought about it for a minute. I didn't really pray about it a lot, but I just, because Don Miller was sitting there, I just said, yeah. And over three backdoor revivals, we lost about 800 people. Can I tell you something? I was no longer the flavor of the month. Because now, all the conversations about me in Albany, Georgia, were about the people that were leaving, not the people that were coming. Now the conversations were different. I had dark hair then. Pastoring here for 28 years has made it white. Moses saw God and it turned white. I just pastored a church and it turned white. <laughs> You know, the Bible says don't lay hands quickly on a novice because you need to know what they're made of. And there are a lot of leaders today that are lacking. They, they have all the answers. Now, I don't want to sound like an old guy, but I do know this. There are things I didn't know 20 years ago that I know now. There are things I didn't know 40 years ago that I know now. When I do uh, state conventions and pastors' conferences and stuff, I always get some, some guy that's just starting in college or just starting in seminary, and he'd come up and, and uh, wants to talk to me. And uh, what I find out very quickly is he, if we've got 10 minutes, he wants to take nine minutes telling me everything he's going to do for God and wants to give me one minute to tell him what he needs to be thinking about. He, you see, one of the signs of a leader is you have to listen. If you don't listen, you don't learn. I never learn anything when I am talking. Never. I've never learned one thing when I'm talking. But I learn when I'm listening. I had a guy come to me a few years ago here in the church, and he said, you know, Pastor, he said, I think we need to do some Sunday school classes on the early church fathers. And I said, why? He said, because our people need to know about the early church fathers. They need, they need to know the story of Augustine, and they need to know the story of how the church was. They need to know all that kind of stuff. Well, you can buy the, the books about the early church fathers. It's about 30 volumes of books, and, and you'll, it's really good to put you to sleep. It's not a history you ought to ignore, but it's a history for seminary classes. And so I said to the person, I said, listen, the people that I talk to on Sunday and the people that sit in our Sunday school classes, you know what they're trying to do? Trying to figure out how to deal with a teenager. They're trying to figure out how to pay their bills. They're trying to figure out how to get their car to run for a little while longer because they can't afford another car payment. They're trying to figure out what they need to put their thermostat on so that they can get it adjusted and pay their electric bill. They're trying to figure out if they're ever going to be able to get a new pillow for the bed because the one they're sleeping on is about as thick as cardboard. They're dealing with life. You're not dealing with life. And can I tell you something? If you've never been broken, you'll always live in a theoretical world. You'll always live with, oh, we ought to be doing this and we ought to be doing that. Jesus did not spend his time with theologians. 
He spent his time with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. If Jesus were here today, he would spend his time with people that we hope we never have to look in the eye. Because he cared about people that didn't have anything. He cared about people that had no hope. He cared about people that were grieving and that were hurting. And most of the young guys that I meet in ministry today, they don't want to do the hard work. I'll be honest with you. They don't want to do the hard work. They want to go and they want to plant a church and they want it to be immediate. That's why some, some church planters are leaving after two years. The minute the funds dry out, they quit. Because church planting is a hard job. It seems nice. And I've met guys say, well, I want to plant a church because I don't want to pastor a church. I said, planting is pastoring. And pastoring is planting. I mean, you you, you got to love the people that you're, no, I'm, I don't have to do that. I just preach. Well, then you're not a church planter. You ought to go into evangelism. You can starve there too. And I said to a young man one day, he said, can you help me find a church? I said, let me, let me see how you do when you've been fired or when you've been broken. Let me see how you do when the rug gets pulled out from under you. Let me see how you do when people hate you and despise you. Let me see how you do when they talk bad about your kids. Let, let me see how you do when the sermon you preached on your family doesn't work with your own family. Let me see how you do when your ideas about church growth don't work and you got more people leaving than you got coming. Let, let me see how you do when all your philosophy and your schemes and all the conferences you've gone to don't pan out in the place where God put you. Let me see how you do when the thorn in the flesh to keep you from exalting yourself sticks you right in the gut. And then we'll know if you're a leader. You see, the courageous leader is the one that gets knocked down seven times and gets up eight. The courageous leader is not the one who always puts on the dress uniform and goes into the parade. The courageous leader is the one that's been in the battle and has the smell of battle on them. And they know how to deal with the battle situations. They know how to deal with the life situations. And, and quite honestly... Everybody gets to the point where they're not cool anymore and they're not hip and they're not trending. And the danger that I see in the leadership that is being raised up today is they think they're always going to be cool and they're always going to be hip and they're always going to be trending. And at some point, they're all going to get to be my age. And they're going to get to the point where coloring their hair is not going to make any difference anymore. And they're going to get to the point where the church members are going to be walking out and leaving and said, for the love of Jesus, please don't wear skinny jeans again. <laughs> I want to ask you a question. Are you usable? Are you teachable? Are you willing for God to squeeze out of you that which doesn't look like Jesus 
so that people are not impressed with your packaging. But what gets them is the treasure inside. They're not in awe of how you look or what you have or what you do or what your gifts are, but what they are in awe of is that God is so big inside of you that you can't be ignored. Roger Breland used to say, I used to think God wanted me to be famous, but I found out all he ever wanted from me was to be faithful. God didn't call us to be famous. God called us to be faithful. So let me ask you, if you're going to be a courageous leader in your family, in your business, in the church, wherever you are, if you're going to be a courageous leader, let me ask you a question. Are you willing to let God take you through dark times? Are you willing to live with the phone may not ring as much as it used to? Are you willing to not be the flavor of the month anymore? You know what Paul had to do? Paul had to die to himself. He had to die to himself. It could not be about Paul anymore. It had to be about Jesus. Before Jesus, it was always about Paul. After Jesus, it was about Jesus. Anytime he got puffed up, he got to the point where the Lord said, I know what you need to keep you humble. Does God need to squeeze anything out of you today that's keeping you from showing the treasure that is inside of you, the grace of God that is inside of you? Does God need to squeeze anything out of you? Is there that thought in your heart or in your head that God is lucky to have me and I'm doing God a favor by just showing up and by letting him use me. I'm doing God a favor. Listen, God's been doing okay for 2,000 years without Simon Peter and the Apostle Paul. He'd probably do all right without any of us. But is today the day we need to do a little dying to ourselves so that the treasure is inside of us, the treasure is not us. The power is inside of us, the power is not in our personality. And maybe you're here today and you think you've gone too far, done too much, that God's grace cannot reach you. I can tell you God's grace can reach the vilest sinner. And today could be the day that God saves you. That God speaks to your heart and says, no, you can't save yourself. No, you can't fix yourself. No, you can't change yourself. But I can do it in a moment. And maybe today, just in this moment, you need to step up and walk out into this aisle, find one of these ministers at the end of the aisle and say, today I need to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. You need to do what many people have done this year, giving their hearts, their lives to Jesus Christ. Heads are bowed. Draw that circle around yourself. Inside that circle, is it full of self are full of the Savior? Is it full of you? Or is it full of Him? Is it full of what you have to offer? 
Or is it full on what God has offered to do for you in Christ Jesus? What's inside you right now? I tell you what's inside. What's inside you is what comes out when you're squeezed. That's what's inside. And when you get squeezed and when life crashes in, what's inside of you is what's on the inside. It's either Jesus or you that's going to get squeezed out. For a world to see that Christ is sufficient for every moment, for every trial, for every temptation, he is sufficient. God uses nobodies and makes them into somebody because they know someone and that someone is Jesus. So I want to ask you, pray for the person on your left and on your right. Just pray that God would use them as instruments of his grace and his mercy and his love and his joy. Would you pray that God would fill them up with himself, that they wouldn't find hope in anything else other than Jesus. Would you just ask God to do that for the people that are standing by you? You may know them, you may not know them, but you can pray for them. Father, I thank you that we are not left to ourselves and to our own devices. I thank you, Father, that we are simply peanut butter jars filled with the sweetness of Jesus Christ. And Lord, forgive us when we think that you care more about the jar than you care more about the exaltation of what's inside the jar of Christ. Help us to be usable people. Lord, our prayer doesn't need to be, Lord, use me. Our prayer needs to be, make us usable. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.